All right. Well, look back again at verse 1. Matthew says, In those days, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. In those days. What days are those? Now, when you read Matthew versus Luke, you realize you have two uh, gospel accounts that are fairly long, but Luke is the one that really provides the details. Okay? Matthew's a good Jewish storyteller, uh, but Luke, as a historian, he is a details guy. And uh, so when Matthew says in those days, he just says John was preaching. But when Luke says in those days, he says it was the 15th year of Caesar, uh, Caesar Tiberius' reign, which is 29 AD. That's a nice little uh, date for us. Caesar Tiberius. Pilate was now governing in Judea in place of Herod Archelaus. Herod's other not-so-crazy son, Antipas. Well, Antipas was crazy in different ways. Okay, um, He is uh, the tetrarch. In Galilee, Tetrarch is someone who reigns over uh, four parts of a kingdom. That's where Jesus currently lived. And then both Ananias and Caiaphas are the high priest, sort of. No history there. Annas was the official high priest from uh, 6 AD to 15 AD, but he was removed by the Romans and replaced with his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who uh, sat in that seat from 18 AD to 36 AD. Now, the Jews continued to look to Annas as their high priest, and he really did, you know, wield most of the influence over the Jewish people. Caiaphas was more of a stooge uh, to keep the Romans happy while uh, Annas was actually calling the shots. Well, those details will become interest, more interesting as we go along in the narrative. So our story begins to really unfold in the days of these people. Now, at the end of chapter 2 of Matthew, Jesus, we know, was a little boy, a little boy. Uh, but now, in the days that Matthew is speaking, he's about 30 years old. Uh, we know that also from Luke chapter 3, verse 23. So around 29 AD, he says he was about 30. So maybe he was 29 and three quarters. Uh, maybe he was 30 and a half. I have no idea. Uh, it just says about do any of you really care exactly how old he was? Okay, good, because it really does not matter. Um, the years in between, from when Jesus was a little boy uh, until his adult life, uh, it's not that important because it didn't have anything to do with his ministry. He's, he's becoming a man in those years. Uh, the, the, the events regarding his birth, those are essential because it helps us to identify or to establish his identity. Um, so we're at 29 AD, and we have this most interesting character in the wilderness. <laughs> and he's preaching. John the Baptist. Though in reality, he is John the Baptizer. Okay, now Baptist, uh, that is not to be confused with one of the Baptist denominations of our time. Uh, a movement that is actually only a few hundred years old. Although I do know some interesting Baptist groups that say that they're tied to John the Baptist. They are not, okay, they are not, okay. John was called the Baptist because that's what he was doing after someone would, uh, you know, repent in response to his preaching. Now, we're going to look at baptism later. Uh, today, we're gonna focus uh, mostly on repentance. 
But real quick, let's talk about John the Baptist. Who is this guy? And how did he learn to dress so well? Do you know where he learned to dress, by the way? What? From you? <laughs> well, there's some good indications he learned to dress from Elijah. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. John the Baptist is actually Jesus' cousin. He is six months older than Jesus. Luke, of course, is the only one that records uh, the details surrounding his birth. The question is, why would Luke record those details and not Matthew and Mark and, and John? Okay? Now, Matthew and Mark were both Jews. Uh, they grew up in Israel, and they knew that most Jews knew who John the Baptist was. He caused quite the stink in Israel. Okay? And as the text says later, everybody from Judea and the surrounding areas were coming down to him. And he, would kind of, he was kind of itinerant. He would go up and down the Jordan Basin uh, between Judea and Galilee. And so people from all over the place were coming down to him. And so people knew who he was. Yep. So I think Matthew and uh, Mark and John, they, they were taking uh, some details for granted. But Luke, Luke was a Gentile. He was raised outside of Israel. In fact, he was probably from Philippi. That's a little ways away. And he had no idea who John was. And so when he was reading Matthew and Mark's account, he was saying, I don't know who this dude is. And the people that I'm writing to, they're not going to know who he is. So Luke is the one that investigated. And then he wrote about um, his life, where he came from. Yeah. John, of course, John wrote much later after Luke. And uh, he probably read Luke's account and said, Luke covered it. Okay, let's move on. Yeah. John the Baptist was a son of a priest named Zacharias. His mother was Elizabeth. Okay, she was the relative of Jesus' mother, Mary. We know that Mary visited Elizabeth shortly after the angel had told Mary that she was going to conceive of the Holy Spirit. And it was at that time that Elizabeth was six months pregnant. Now, some of the details uh, surrounding John's, uh, uh, the announcement of his birth and then his birth is very interesting. Uh, I think most importantly is that when, after he was born, and if you know the story, Zechariah could then speak again. And what he did was he prophesied in regard to the child and the child's mission. He said, you child will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us. Day spring is a, uh, an idiom for Messiah, the Anatolia to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel, which is 29 AD. So as soon as he was old enough, he was a desert dweller. John was weird, okay? <laughs> uh, when we look at a number of the prophets in the Old Testament, they were eccentric and just different kind of people. And uh, so we'll look at that a little bit later. That's Luke 1, 76 through 80. So John, he was a child of prophecy, not only from what his father said, but even in the Old Testament, the prophets were anticipating uh, this individual. We'll explore that in a minute. His preaching ministry began in the desert in Judea. Uh, it says, in the Jordan Basin, east of Jerusalem. 
This is what he preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Such a great omitted word from so much today. Yeah. He was preaching repentance in preparation for the kingdom of heaven. Preparation. Now, a preacher once said, I was listening in um, uh, among a group of other pastors, and one of them said that the preaching of repentance has its place. I was a young guy, uh, but I wasn't stupid. Okay? And I thought to myself, no, it, it has its place in every gospel message, lest it be something other than the gospel. So you see, when people say stuff like that, they are claiming for themselves more authority than the text of the word. Now, they may not recognize that. They would never say that. But that's what it amounts to, and it's absolute foolishness. Many preachers today believe that the, the way the gospel was preached in the Bible turns people away, and so what we should do in order to be relevant to the culture we're in, we should change the way we communicate the gospel. So they have communicated, I'm sorry, they have omitted, rather, everything that makes the gospel the gospel. They have. That's modern preaching. And instead of turning people away, they fill their churches with people that are not saved because those people have not repented and believed in the gospel. But these pastors, they feel good about themselves because the seats in their churches are full. You understand? We got churches full of people. Yeah. But the gospel, we have to understand, is a thing. And part of that thing is the necessity of repentance. A prominent British um, theologian right now has written a book about the gospel. Um, and he says that the gospel is not that clear. Well, the, when, I, when I heard that, I, I thought, that's interesting, because Paul said that if one of us or an angel preach any other gospel than what you have received, let him be accursed. Look, if you can be accursed for preaching and receiving the wrong gospel, I think that the gospel is clear. It's clear. Okay? There's nothing obscure about the gospel that we have. Yeah. The gospel is a thing, and repentance is part of it. If it wasn't necessary, that is repentance, it would not have been preached so explicitly or communicated so implicitly in every gospel message in the Bible. Yeah. All of the major players in the New Testament, they actually began their ministries preaching repentance. We see John doing it here. Uh, we see Jesus preaching repent repentance the moment his ministry began. We'll see it in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. You see it in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. In fact, Jesus is the one that said, unless you repent, uh, you will perish. You will perish. That means repentance is a, a contingency. It's a, it's a condition for salvation. And then the original apostles who were taught by Jesus and, and they, they, they grew up, as it were, under Jesus' example, they preached repentance immediately when they started their ministry. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Later, after Paul the apostle was called to the ministry, he preached repentance, Acts chapter 17, verse 30. And what I find very interesting about Paul's uh, example in the book of Acts, uh, during a hearing before King Agrippa, Paul was, uh, as he did frequently, he was giving his testimony about how Jesus appeared to him and called him as a preacher and as an apostle. And, and this is what he said at that hearing to Agrippa. He said, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. 
but declared first to those in Damascus and into Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles. That is, everywhere I preached, I was not disobedient. So I'm curious, Paul, how exactly were you not disobedient to the heavenly calling? What was it in your preaching that you preached in obedience to Christ? You declared what? That they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. He's almost quoting John the Baptist there. We'll cover that text later. So Paul is saying, look, preaching repentance, preaching repentance was a matter of obedience to Christ. I was not disobedient to the heavenly calling, but I preached that they should repent and turn to God. Paul was commanded to do that. And everyone who shares the gospel today, what does everyone mean? Everyone who preaches the gospel today has the obligation to preach repentance. So preaching repentance didn't just have its place in some gospel message of the past. If you omit that from your message, you omit something that is necessary for salvation. You're wasting their time and you're wasting your own time. Okay, you're doing nothing. Repentance is necessary. So don't be fooled by numbers or your approval rating, how many likes you get on Facebook or thumbs up on YouTube. Okay, do not, that stuff for many people is intoxicating and it becomes the only thing that they're after is being approved of, of being liked. You can't do that. You have to love your audience enough to preach repentance. It's necessary for salvation. Something else that is very interesting um, about preaching repentance that I, I, I'm not seeing very much today is that repentance is always preached in the imperative form, meaning it's a command. It's a command. I don't know how many times I've heard preachers completely omit repentance, but then what they're doing is they're almost pleading with people to, um, to accept Jesus. And, and sometimes I get it, but it's just not the way we were given it. You understand? It was always an imperative. It's always an imperative in the scriptures. God doesn't go to the rebel and make requests. He never bargains with a sinner. Hey, if you you repent, we can be friends. Okay, that kind of thinking creates an idea of God that is utterly below him. That the sovereign of the universe would come and belittle himself in his saving of humanity. He is God Almighty. It's true, he is gracious and merciful but he is not one to trifle with when he makes his demands, right? Yeah. In Acts 17, 30, Paul said that God commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he will judge everyone in the world according to what is right. If you ain't right on that day, it won't be good. That's the message, okay? In Revelation 2, 16, when Jesus was speaking to the church of Pergamum, he said, repent or else. Repent or else, and he says, or I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Revelation 2.16. In fact, almost every church that he speaks to, uh, he calls them to repentance. And it is repent or else when you read the text. He's not kidding. He's not making requests. Okay? He's, he's not in that business when it comes to repentance and things of that nature. Repentance is a necessary component of gospel preaching. Repentance is necessary for salvation. Repentance is always a command. So the question is, what is repentance? 
But what was, what was John saying to his audience? What were they hearing him say? The English word repent means to be sorry again. Repentance. Repentance, to have contrition or sorrow over one's actions. Now, that is very important when it comes to our disposition regarding sin. Paul says godly sorrow, contrition, leads to repentance. You know, God honors the broken and contrite heart. But that is not what the Greek word in our passage means. It does not mean to be sorry again. And sadly, there's no English equivalent to this Greek word. John actually uses a compound word, and it literally means to change the mind, to turn away, to relent in one's actions. It is often a reference to turning away from something negative, like sin and rebellion, or changing, one, uh, changing one's mind uh, from a favorable sense, uh, a favorable attitude, rather, towards sin. In Acts 19.20, that we referenced earlier, uh, Paul actually uses the same word when he says repent, describing the, the negative things that people should turn from. And then he uses another word, which meant to turn to the positive thing, which was God. He says, I wasn't disobedient. And I told them they needed to repent and turn. They need to relent and turn. So repentance then is twofold. It requires that a person relent in regard to sin and rebellion, and it requires that we turn to God, surrendering to his will. I think that's probably the hardest thing for sinful, rebellious humanity is that when we come to Christ, we're exchanging our will for his. And that's, that's that part of that repenting, is we're saying, my will is destructive. Your will is perfect. My will is hurtful. My will leads to death. But God, your will is beautiful. And if I will only exchange it, things will be right. Things will be well. Yeah, and this is only logical. You cannot obey Christ while living in sin, right? Yeah, you cannot turn to Christ without turning away from a lifestyle of sin. Now, it's worth mentioning, uh, those who have trusted in Christ for salvation, they are redeemed. They're saved. Uh, and in this room among the saved, how many of you still sin? So how many of you still need to repent? Okay, so repentance among the believers must be a lifestyle. There is that initial repentance when coming to Christ to be saved. It's initial. But then once you're saved, you realize that you don't always say the things that you ought. You don't always think the things that you should think, do the things that you should do. And as Christians, we should repent quickly and decisively, as God requires. Okay. It's still not a request. We're not, we're not, we're not homies like that yet, right? <laughs> but when we preach repentance to the unbelieving world, we are calling people to discontinue in sin and to surrender to God. So very simple. You know, repentance, as I've said, is necessary as a component of the gospel. Repentance is necessary for salvation. Repentance is always a command. It, you don't have to make it mean you don't have to be a jerk when you share the gospel, but repentance cannot be thrown out there as an option for coming to Christ. It just cannot. Repentance requires that we discontinue in sin and we yield to God's will. Look again at our text. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the reason that John gives for this need of repentance was because the kingdom of heaven was near. It was near, it was, we might say it was imminent. Now the kingdom of heaven 
speaks of God's rule, his reign, the, the realm over which he governs, the realm. Jesus will teach his disciples to pray that the Father's will be done on earth as it already is done in heaven. Listen to what he's instructing them. The, he's telling them to pray that the kingdom of heaven would come to earth. That's what they're praying. This kingdom, John said, was at hand, it was near, and therefore the people should repent. They would not want to be living in active sin when this kingdom is realized. That's what he's getting at. So this kingdom was not simply political, it's moral. And repentance was necessary as a qualification for membership. It's necessary. And the fact is, one is either a member of the kingdom of heaven or he's a member of the kingdom of darkness. There's just only two kingdoms. That's it. Sadly, because of sin, people are born into the kingdom of darkness. And the only way to exit that kingdom, to enter the kingdom of heaven, is through, according to John, it's repentance. That's it. Okay? As we'll see later, many Jews thought that by virtue of their Jewishness, that is, because of their relationship to Abraham, they were automatically in the kingdom of heaven. John will say, not the case, not the case. Even the Jew had to repent. Yeah. Now, no concept carried with it more eagerness for the Jew than that of the kingdom of heaven. This, this was the great hope of the first century Jew. I hope it's also yours, by the way the coming of the kingdom, yeah. But like all kingdoms, this one had a very specific king known to the Jews as Messiah King, or in Daniel, it's Messiah the Prince. We might say the Prince of Peace, yeah. And John is there in the desert saying that this kingdom is near, and if that kingdom is near, the Messiah King must also be near. How exciting would that sound? And you know what's interesting is part of the excitement is due to the way that John is dressed. It is. We'll talk about that next Sunday. <laughs> yeah. Later on, the religious leaders of Israel, they'll actually ask John, are you the Messiah? Are you Messiah? Uh, those questions are recorded in uh, the Apostle John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 20 through 24. They also say, well, are you Elijah? That question is because of the way he's dressed. And they say, because Malachi predicts Elijah's coming. And then they say, or are you the prophet? Speaking of Deuteronomy chapter 18, they're a little confused. They know something's up. They just don't know how to exactly put their finger on it. Okay? And uh, Matthew omits the interrogation, but still mentions the prophecy uh, regarding John's identity and mission. In John, they say, well, well, if you're not the Messiah, if you're not Elijah or the prophet, who do you think you are? And he says, he quotes this, this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Where's John? He's in the wilderness of Judea. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So this is Isaiah 40, uh, verse three. Okay. Now you can see by the mention of the kingdom of heaven, uh, back in verse two, uh, with the mention of the Lord here in this prophecy, that we have a king and we have a kingdom. We have a king and a kingdom. John has been sent as a herald to announce the arrival of this particular king who is coming to establish his kingdom over his realm. That's what he's doing in the desert. In the prophecy, the Herod tells people, the herald, not Herod, the herald tells people to prepare the way of the Lord by making his paths straight. Now this, this has some uh, ancient imagery to it. Typically the people 
who were receiving a king to their city or their realm, wherever they were in the ancient East, they would make sure that the roads leading to the city were cleared of all debris so that as the king comes in his chariot or on horseback, there is nothing obstructing his way, nothing. Get it all out of the way so that we can welcome this king. But the prophecy isn't referring to road construction. It's not what it is. It's not roads that John is concerned with. It's the condition of the heart. And as we've been talking about, this is a translation from the Greek, um, Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The Hebrew Old Testament in Isaiah 43 is using all kinds of hyperbole. So we know that it's not speaking literally, but it has to do with what's inside of us. It's more of an illustration. He isn't encouraging people to clear debris from the road, but just as roads are cleared for a king's reception, the hearts of men must be cleared of sin through repentance. That's how we make way for this king at this time. They must repent if they're to welcome this king and participate in his kingdom. Jesus will later say that unless you repent, you will perish. Luke 13, three through five. In fact, Jesus repeats the saying for emphasis. I mean, the saying wasn't nice to begin with. And in the context he says it, it even sounds harsh. But he repeats himself because of the absolute necessity of it. Now, if Jesus were here now, he would say, don't, ident- don't bother identifying yourself as a Christian unless you have repented, unless you have turned. To the Jews, John basically said, do not comfort yourself with your pedigree. It will do you no good on the day of judgment. If you do not repent, you will perish. Jesus, I think, might say to many in the church today, there is no sense in reassuring yourself by the fact that you attend church or participate in the ministry. It makes no difference without repentance. It comes to nothing. You guys, the way must be prepared for this king. The obstacles, they must be removed. Sin must be abandoned. This king will accept nothing less. Nothing less. Preparations must be made. This king will either be received by you to rule over your heart, or as he says in Revelation, he will come as your foe. Those who welcome him through repentance, or rather those who do not, they will be rejected. This realm of his is only available to the repentant. John would tell his audience to surrender now, to cease and desist from sin. If you do that, he will rule over your heart. He will deliver you from judgment. His kingdom is about to be realized. And once it is, every decision will be final. All loyalties settled. And Jesus will take all that belongs to him. And as John will tell us later in the chapter, he will cast out everything else. Jesus is not messing around when it comes to his demands. Okay. God in Christ Jesus has offered us everything through Jesus. And now he's calling us to give everything to him. Amen? All right, let's stand up and pray. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. If you are struggling in sin and you feel like there's no way out as a Christian and you, you know you need help, I, you need to go to a brother, a sister that you trust and who won't leave any options open for you but will be straightforward with you and loving and walk beside you in repentance. And if you're not a Christian, um, I can't change the message of Christ for you. Repentance is required of you. You must repent. But if you do, Christ will forgive, he will wash, he will give you life. 
But until then, it's not okay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the, the grace of repentance. Lord, the scriptures say that in your goodness, you have granted repentance to us. You didn't have to. We don't deserve the opportunity to repent. No rebel does. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Lord, I pray that for anybody in this room that's dabbling with sin, I pray that the truth of this would dawn upon them and, and the fear of the Lord. And Lord, that they would repent. And Lord, that through that, they would experience refreshing from you. Lord, work in our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Right.